someone is sharing those arms with me. Hello, and welcome to Chosen by Committee, the podcast where myself, Josh Heron, Christopher Munden, John Rosenberg, read through every Pulitzer Prize-winning play written since 1918, so you don't have to, or so you'll read along and join us. Like I said, my name is Josh Heron. I am a third grade teacher and theater critic, and I am joined by Findy founder and writer Christopher Munden. Hello. And uh, playwright, actor, Angelino, John Rosenberg. Hello, Josh. Uh, and this week we are talking about the 1946 political comedy, question mark, um, State of the Union by Lindsay Howard and Robert Krauss, Richard Krauss? Russell Krauss, excuse me. Um, and yeah, this sort of, I feel like this play, um, we'll get into it, but I think it, it sort of fits nicely in sort of the, there's like a, a very specific sort of genre of like early 20th century, like Pulitzer Prize winning political comedies, satires that I think this like sits sort of squarely in that tradition. Um, I'll give a summary, does anyone object to that? No, please. No objection. All right, so um, the play follows um, idealistic businessman Grant Matthews um, who uh, has been sleeping with um, Mrs. Thorndike, who is a newspaper publisher, um, a reliable Republican newspaper pol- publisher. And she has sort of hoodwinked or not hoodwinked, but she has sort of convinced her lover to run for president of the Repu- as the Republican party nominee. And he is sort of like, super middle of the road like he is so middle of the road it like shocking right like uh everyone is right and everyone needs to to put aside their petty grievances for the good of the american people and um and centrist hope and patriotism will guide america through um and at every turn he is sort of stymied by political intrigue and the need to make concessions to parties, uh, not to political parties, but to special interest groups to, uh, to move his candidacy forward. Um, and he is sort of pushed into a more ideological, like ideological pure position by his wife, Mary, who thinks that he should uh, sort of run a campaign of no compromises. Um, and that comes to, uh, ahead a couple times, but at once when he changes a speech in Detroit, um, in which he's, uh, not going to tell the businessmen like it is, um, because he's afraid of losing their contributions. And then at a final dinner party, he sort of, uh, I guess Mary loses it and gets sort of tipsy um there's a lot of characters here we'll have to explain on the way of sort of his advisors and his sort of entourage um and then mary convinces him to not run for president but to sort of be a 
like ideological cheerleader on the sidelines um, and that sort of saves their marriage. Um, at least that's how I read the ending. Yeah, I like the uh, uh, double entendre of the title State of the Union. So it's like State of the Union as in the speech that they give the state of the United States and political play, but it's also the state of his marriage with Mary and perhaps his affair with Kay. And so it does have some interesting political intrigue. It's political in the sense of it's a political play in that it talks about politics, not really as in it talks it, about like anything serious. There's like, yeah, yeah. I think that like, I, I have some, uh, I have some like issues with the play, but I wonder if we start with more things that we were delighted by or surprised by or things that we enjoyed. Um, I found, so, yeah, all, yeah. I found, so it's interesting for a play that is like meant to really like, color politics like like i think plays that have like with issues at the heart of them and it's intended to color politics and like show how the sausage gets made um i think for a play like that it has really like i think well-drawn characters um i think the protagonist hero is is like shown with flaws i think his wife is shown with flaws um i think the the lady he's having an affair with is like you see sort of both sides. I think all the characters are like, are sort of complete and complex. Um, even the ones that represent sort of moneyed interest, like seem likable or seem well-rounded and have sort of um, wholeness to them. Um, and the human drama, the human interactions feels real and feels, feels like there's, a, uh, there's drama there, there's things at stake there, um, more than just the political, but the, the personal. Yeah. And then I also, this play exists. So I'm thinking around of the icing and both your houses, which were both sort of satires of politics, both your houses is more realistic than of the icing. And this one is even more realistic than that. But um, both your houses didn't exist, like existed with like contemporary party politics, but didn't exist with like real people. Um, and like this play exists in 1946 America. So like, Mm -hmm. Truman is president and FDR is president and the Republicans... They talk about whether or not uh, Dewey is going to run again because he ran in 44 and he does run again. Um, oh, this is, the, this is the Dewey beats Truman election. Uh, yeah, this is yeah, it. Okay. So Dewey ran against FDR in 44 and lost. And then he ran famously against Truman. So... So Grant Matthews would be like competing with Dewey for that, uh, God, for that we, Republican nomination. If only we could have, uh, if only we could have elected Grant Matthews. Matthews beats Truman. Um, what did you like about it, John? Um, I think you, I think you both touched upon some of the the more positive aspects of it. I thought. Um, Right. It's not one of those plays or I think it's also a trope in a lot of movies where it's like they talk about Republicans or Democrats, but it's like toothless in that they're fake uh, politicians or something. I definitely appreciated that. I also appreciated that, you know, like you said, both the main characters were having affairs with other people. Oh, right. Um, right. Mary has an affair with a, a major. 
Yeah. And I think it definitely keeps it from just being like Grant is a perfect person that um, like uh, putting him up on a pedestal and like the, the playwright is trying to put forth like the perfect politician or, you know, like, so I, I appreciated the, the humanness of it. I thought structurally it was done. I thought the opening scene structurally was done really well where like people in and out of the rooms kind of uh, how information was fed to us, I thought was done really well in the first scene. Mm-hmm. felt like that kind of slipped away a little bit as the play went on where it's like referring to speeches in other cities. And then like, I was, you know, I also was disappointed at the dinner scene that her big blow up at the table isn't shown. And mm-hmm. it's almost, it's tough that it's like, she got so drunk. She doesn't remember. I thought it, I thought it was a disservice to Mary who I thought was a very well-written character. Yeah. And also I found her attractive as a person meeting mm-hmm. her. I found her attractive um, and drawn to her in, in, you know, in the play. Um, but yeah. I, I thought like this probably is a great like blueprint for later rom-coms of how to straddle the personal and the political or whatever, and make something coherent and seemingly realistic. Right. I think that second act would probably be more fun to see than on stage than to read. I yeah. mean, it's, it would be tough. The, the drunkenness, oh, you know, the last line of the third act, first scene is like, I'm a thick quinker, you know, like she's, she's stumbles off stage or something like that tries to keep herself you would hope that an actor would play her without being farcically drunk but having gone to the theater enough so in the second act there's a scene where they're at the hotel and he's trying to eat dinner and there's uh all these special interests come to different rooms and he has to get shuttled off is and i don't think that was particularly exciting to read but i think on stage there could be like i'm imagining some funny door bits um, yeah, and I liked the, the first scene of the third act when, you know, they've, they've set up that um, no one's going to get too drunk and then Mary does start to, and you, I don't know, I felt reading it a kind of tension build. It was too bad we didn't see that blow up, though. I agree. And then it, it's strange that, you know, half an hour after a drunken thing, she doesn't remember. And she's like sober recovery. Yeah. One thing I thought about, um, we've talked, we, we talked, uh, you know, talked about the West Wing and Sorkin and mentioned Sorkin in a different uh, episode. And John said it, an interesting criticism of him, his dialogue, his characters, which was that um, like everyone's too smart everyone says the perfect thing the witty thing yeah and i wondered uh like what did you think about this play in that regard john i don't i don't feel like i held it to the same standard because there 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 was an element to me of like hepburn and tracy where Mm -hmm. i knew that it at its core it was really about the husband and wife yeah. Um, 
So I felt like everything, you know, Conover, whoever the senator was, he was interestingly drawn, but I knew he was just there as a foil. I knew he wasn't central to the play. Um, so all of it kind of, all of it kind of became just like background for me in a way uh, that maybe another political thing would, I would require it to be different. Um, but like, yeah, I, 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 I dig what you're saying, but I didn't hold it to the same, like the same standard of it having to be something other than, um, I feel like what you're talking about is there in that first scene, the quickness of like, mm-hmm. mostly the spike guy. He always has a funny quip and all that. But I also associate that with the excitement of the evening. But like, yeah, that, that, that Sorkin thing. Um, yeah. It, it, it wasn't there for me. Was it, was it there for you? Um, enough that I thought about it and I won cause because no, I did enjoy the dialogue. I did enjoy that first scene and the the first scene of the third act too. I thought was quick and good. But I wonder if um, that sort. Oh, sorry. But but I was wondering if like if it was too neatly done almost. But I wonder if that Sorkin thing is like that Sorkin thing isn't just a him thing. Like it feels like an anachronism now. But like all of those movies, like all of those sort of fast talking, like, you know. Yeah, the 40s, like, 50s movies, right. This it's done, right? Like they don't, like naturalism wasn't the aim. Like people talk <laughs> insane in those kind of, in like those movies. But to movies. me, the difference is the Sorkin thing is it acts like it's naturalism. And that's the difference. That's the danger is that like, he's saying these are the best and the brightest. They they are really like this, right. which is which is a danger. Right. Well, um, I think it, they were going for naturalism. Naturalism was the thing. Like we, and and probably if you see a play from twenty twenty, uh, not there'll be plays from twenty twenty. If you see a play from twenty nineteen, in in like, or a movie from twenty nineteen, twenty years from now, it will it may seem like. That's yeah. our style is. I will push back a little bit, or, or maybe this is like to okay. your point in a different way, but like I was watching, um, have you ever seen The Magnificent Ambersons? Yeah, yeah. I was watching, it's an Orson Welles movie about like a 1940s about a family, like a once lovely family, like a once grand family that sort of like spirals into decay. But I was watching it and I was trying to figure out like what, like what my response to it was. And I was realizing that the acting and the dialogue was so much more natural. Like the camera's doing all this crazy stuff mm. and there's like, but the acting is much more natural than I'm used to from a movie in that period. So there is like a... Yeah, I don't know. I, when I saw Philadelphia Story, I was, I was struck by how real it felt in certain ways in a way that like modern movies don't now. So I don't know if I'm working against myself, but just that because it doesn't feel naturalistic to us doesn't mean that that's not what they were going for. Yeah. Um, another thing that I think is really, like that brings up the, the, the sort of specter of time um, is just the, and I, like, I always get confused about this, um, but the, it's like a Republican Democratic Party before the realignment and sort of right. 
like those pieces are like starting to like come together. Um, so it's an interesting sort of document in that way of just like um, what the two party system, like the two party system always being frustrating and always being sort of uh, two variations on the same like shitty themes. But like before those parties like changed into something like we would recognize today. Yeah, there's lines about how the South will never go right. Republican and Vermont were, has always been Republican. And like, uh-huh. Yeah. That's striking. Um, then I think that, like, for me, the big elephant in the room of this play, which is all about politics, is that, like, the politics of this play are just shockingly vacuous and empty. Um, yeah. Like, Grant is this, like, is posed as this figure that, like, stands for something. And what he stands for is, like, unions are out of control, but so is big business. And, uh, <laughs> right. like, right. we need to put a, like, we need to put a ceiling on how much we can charge for produce, but we also need to put a, like, a floor. Like, you know, it's just like. Yeah. Um, but he is a successful New York businessman. I, and... So there is that, right? Like, there is this, like, <laughs> like Maybe that's what the country needs. <laughs> yeah, as we recording this. Uh, it is a kind of play you might see done in an election year. Maybe, maybe yeah, a non-Trumpian election that, like, year. Um, the Ford Theater where Lincoln was shot, boop, boop, um, did it in 2008. Oh, that's That's funny. like the only major, um, apparently, um, uh, apparently, when you go to the Ford Theater, you get free admission to the Ford Theater Museum, and you go through this whole like exhibition about um, how Abe Lincoln died, and then like the la- like the ramp as you leave the exhibition is like a ticking clock, like to like, but then you um, but then you leave the exhibition up that like intense lobby steps, and then all of a sudden you're in the lobby of like. The Ford Theater, come see Ragtime. <laughs> and can you see the, the balcony seats where he was shot? You can see them, but you can't sit in them. This is all secondhand, but apparently they have- No like, one can sit in them. Apparently they're shitty seats, but there's like <laughs> a bunch of American flags and stuff. Oh. I wonder if Lincoln was thinking the same thing, that these are shitty seats. Yeah, six semper tuna. Um, oh dear. I keep wanting them <laughs> that, to came, that came a little too trippingly off the tongue there, Christopher. Um, <laughs> I'm worried that that's not the first time you've said that. No. <laughs> John, it's because he played right. John Wilkes Booth in a production of Assassins. Which I think that the four theaters should just be doing in all the time. You know, Chris might actually enjoy Assassins. There are musicals that Chris would enjoy if he got that massive Tony Award size stick out of his ass. Um, yeah, you you might be right. <laughs> I like watching? how that was like he threw you a bone there. <laughs> sure, 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 kid. Here's a nickel. Move on. Well, we're gonna see. We're gonna see we got some. Oklahoma. <laughs> we got Sydney Park with George. We got Chorus Line. We got Hamilton. Rent. Your rent. I mean, that's like going to be really. Emo- that's going to be a. That's going to be an episode of like me crying and you just like 
of me processing a lot of stuff and you guys just being like, okay. Uh, I think I think I'm there just to listen for that episode. I'm just here to listen. Just to like just to hold space for me. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, like, is there anything to be making of these politics? I mean, I like I even think talking about them maybe gives it too much credit. They're so stupid and like. Yeah, I, I found it. You know, I found the the speech at the end interesting, where she kind of lays her cards down about the future of America and like. The thing about the atomic age. I thought that was interesting. I thought it was surprising to I'm a love. To hear someone speaking uh bluntly about the atomic age in like a commercial Broadway play in like nineteen forty six. Um I also I also found it interesting. I don't know if either of you gentlemen read the introduction to the play. Um it wasn't written by the author. Yeah, I did read it. I don't think I did. I, I, I thought it was a very interesting just kind of like uh, I think I usually associate in the, in the introduction, it was just talking about how, you know, waking up from the war, it wasn't uh, life wasn't great again or something like that. It continued mm-hmm. to be shitty. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, this kind of goes probably with like what people in Britain culturally experienced after the war, like, I think in America it became, you know, it was like this, everything is great, everything is up and wonderful. And I thought it was very interesting, like, there, were, there was no note of, like, uh, triumphalism in winning the war. It was like life went back to how shitty it was before. And we have all these problems that we all have to work on. Um, and they're scared that it's going to go back to depression, aren't they? They say that in the play. Oh, you know, I, I didn't even catch that line, huh? I think. I mean, I think they're going to go back to war. They think they're going to, like... Yeah. And then there's this stuff that's, like, so, like, oh, like, uh, there's that lady who's just trying to prey on everyone's, like, nationalistic tendencies in this, like, really crass way that... Uh, I think, yeah, I, I think what, it, what surprised me about it is, I always remember a few years ago, I was in Arizona in a parking lot, I saw a guy get out of a car wearing a shirt that said, um, America, you know, basically won World War One, won World War Two. It was like America two for zero or something. Like it 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 just like it was like listing it like like a sports like score. And I think I was almost expecting something more like that in this play. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting uh the the tenor it took regarding the future or what America was. I think to its like I think to its credit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it really surprised me. But um, also, it's indicative of its time in a way that like uh, you wouldn't get from a piece set in that time, right? Which is what makes reading these timepieces so interesting. Absolutely. Um, yeah, sorry, not to harp on it, but I, w- I would never expect that. Like, if I was to, if I was to write a shitty play set in like 1946, I wouldn't even think of having that, that feeling, you know, the worry like of two world wars and one world cup. <laughs> right, it, right. And we've totally like, forgotten that that happened. Like, I think of like, I think we think of like 
the economic boom of the fifties and like yeah. urbanization and I guess, like I, I think I wouldn't even think of the anxiety of another depression or the anxiety of another war slipping back into something, mm-hmm. um, which 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 is a really interesting thing for me to read and experience. I really appreciated it. And the and the new anxiety of the atomic age, which Absolutely, you may think yeah. would I mean I don't think Soviet Union or Britain didn't even have, has a bomb yet, right? No, Soviet Union didn't have a bomb in nineteen forty six. They didn't. No, so like with the United States as a sole nuclear power, there's still an anxiety that comes with I it feel like it was almost this, uh, to me, and I, I feel like it's interesting, it's almost this uh, massive responsibility as being the only ones with it. Mm. And like, you know what I mean? Like instead of the anxiety later of, you know, the yellow ones have it or the Ruskies have it or whatever, um, it was like a very sobering look at us after a war. And I, I, I thought it was very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, With hollow politics, though. In the whole really <laughs> hollow politics. I mean, it's again, the politics, yeah, they, they like these, uh, this idea of like, if we could all just come together and we need a politician who just talks sense and, an honest person to fix all our problems. And yet it is, I think it is to be commended that the two, the husband and wife were both having affairs. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, there's like this, like, I mean, I, 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 like, I, given the time it was written, it makes sense of this, like very anti-left thing that is just so hard to, like so hard to swallow like to equate the power of like of like industry titans against the power of workers and it's just like it's so it's like hindsight doesn't look kindly to the politics of this play uh yeah well i don't know about that it's funny because the politics of this play didn't bother me in the same way that on both your houses bothered me Mm. like um I was more interested in them as a couple in their um, in, in whatever path they were going to be on. And I recognized the road of the path to the nomination would be fraught with peril or whatever. And I wasn't interested in the machinations of the politics. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost everything he was saying kind of, it, it was, it was, it was dull to me and it really didn't make an effect on me. Yeah. But that's also because me and Chris, I guess, are incredibly conservative. Well, at, least, <laughs> at least neoliberal new left, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it. Oh, dear. Your silence uh, is complicity. Um, who would you be? I liked the reporter, the uh, Spike. He's he's kind of the communications director, George Stephanopoulos guy of the campaign. Uh, I liked him. Yeah, I think he's sort of the heart of the play too. Like in a way, in a way. Why? Uh, why do you say that? Why do I say that? Yeah. Well, I think just at the end, he's like, he's like, I think the one that he sort of straddles both lines. 
Right, uh, he, right. he's maybe right at the beginning and right at the end. And, and he, he says, has like, you know, times. he's a reporter that holds politicians to truth, but also is, like, able to run a camp. Like, he, like, speaks to both sort of mindsets in this play. Got it. I thought you would be Mary, Josh, but what are your thoughts? No, I'm Lulubelle. <laughs> yeah, the, you are. <laughs> the uh, drunk. Uh, Get me another Sazerac, please. <laughs> oh, lad. All right. Yeah. And John, who are you? I don't know, but I was really, really. My imagination was captured by Mary, um, and it like it went away with the uh, the with the drunken the shit. Yeah. And I was like, eh, I don't give a fuck, but like. I appreciated the construction of her and what the author let her be in certain ways, Mm -hmm. whether it was between other people's perceptions of her being a nag or like her relationship with her husband. Um, There there was like a sexuality to her that surprised me. Mm -hmm. Um, That was not overly uh, gross to me. Right, I think the way she was set up, I was not expecting to be a very interesting character. Yeah. Oh, right. She's the wife, is how she said it. Wife, and she's like in New York. Yeah. She doesn't want to go out, and I was like, oh. And then she's like this, like really amazing sort of like I could totally see her being like an Eva Perone, right? Like a. (laughs) um... Well, she she's a lead. She's a star, (laughs) and you don't expect that having met Kay already, do you? And and she is. She's the one that an actor would want to play in the play, I think. Yeah. yeah and she would be it. I would want to do something different with her in the third act. Like, I would want to change change it so that she knew exactly what she had done. I would just rewrite the whole third like, I'd rewrite the third act. Yeah, I mean, I, I like, you could, you could I like the right? idea of her getting... I'm oh, sorry. I mean, you wouldn't even have like to rewrite it. You could, like, have her not be... You could have her not drinking the drinks, right? You could like have her. No, I didn't like that. I like no, that. No, no. To me, no. you take everything that happened in the final scene where she basically lays it all out, mm-hmm. and you just put in that first scene of like them going to the table. You, the the emotional thing is all there. There's just no reason for it to be. I can't believe what. Oh, I forgot what I say. Or right. Or any That's of that the shit. thing. I mean, so but the third act is divided into two scenes, and right. I really like that first scene until like she's supposed to play drunk. Well, here's what I think you could do though: is you you have that be a choice that she's making. Like you have her play drunk, right? So you have her like take the drinks, not drink them, but like oh, no, act. she drinks. No, them. no, because you can't do that because she's so. She's not um what's her name from the Mary Wise of Windsor. She's not she's not cunning. Mm. She's not scheming. She mm. she's doing the, it's from her heart so it has yeah. to her actions have to take they, it too far where do you know what I mean? If if she's scheming she's like she's a grosso. And her and it builds attention. You yeah, you feel something coming on because she keeps having those drinks and uh, and yeah, it's it's good. I really like that scene. I didn't like the less how she is in the last scene. I would change. Yeah, it, it was it was unfair to her. It was definitely yeah. unfair to her. And she knows exactly what she did. Uh, if I was the director of production, I think 
this is like not gonna add but this is my like fun twist is i would have like a projector with like newspaper headlines in between mm. scenes and sort of like bring that world in mm. um but i don't know if well, that as much um the i in the front in the he says that you could re you could change it to reset it in any time, right? So I think that's pretty. Uh, that's a that's pretty. Okay, I, I'm curious about how you would go about that. Um, it, feels, it feels very specific. It does. It does. But I feel like they. Could the conclusions it, it it ends with is very of its time, but you could, I think because it is so hollow, the politics in a way, like mm -hmm. the, oh my God, both sides. Could, There's a lot of people but, who like, I don't know, Bloomberg still appealed to like this idea that what we need is a third party that's middle of the road. I mean, there's not that many people who think that, but probably among the rich New York that's Joe Biden. Judge okay, Judy, Judge, yeah. Judge Judy really liked Michael Bloomberg too. Uh, I mean, among like New York theater going audience, there's probably a high percentage of people who like that. Right. Well, it's like they, they don't want to spend money, but they don't want to feel guilty about it. Yeah. Um, any other ideas for Zippy Productions? Uh, this premiered in DC, not New York. I'd do it with all dogs. That's what I would do. That's like funny. I always, in the trend. I always look at Seymour and I go, who's doggy president? You're doggy president. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of a Trump is what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> um, so next week, or yeah, next week, we there's no Pulitzer Award in 1947. So we zip ahead to 1948 where a little play called A Streetcar Named Desire wins. Um, by Tennessee weirdly, so we're in the middle of pandemic still, and the, I, I don't know exactly what date it was. It was something like the 10th or the 15th of March. The last time I went to the theater was to see a pay-what-you-want um, pre-preview production of Streetcar Named Desire. And, um, Who put it on? It was at the Arden, and they, so I saw, I think it was a Wednesday, and then the preview started on the Thursday, and they did not make it through that weekend before the... Any predictions what this one's about? Um, weirdly, I was in New Orleans like two weeks before I saw it, and um, there's a street named Desire, and I was just so struck by the fact that there was a street named Desire. There was another street named Burgundy. I love that there was an intersection of Desire and Burgundy. And while I was there, I completely didn't put together that the title of that play was <laughs> named after the same thing, a streetcar named Desire. Not to, not to belabor this, but do you know how the streets are pronounced in New Orleans? Because I feel like a lot of streets that you think are pronounced one way have the most ridiculous pronunciations. So it's probably I don't know. Desiree Des and Bagondi. Right, Desiree or something like that. I um, do not know if that's the case. Have you seen the, street, the Simpsons episode about Street Cranium Desire? 
I don't know, but I... Alec Baldwin was in a version of A Street Cry Named Desire that I've never seen, and I'm dying to watch it. Mm. Well, I Delta. saw <laughs> the, um, the Woody Allen version of it. What? It was, it was like a... A joke. Um, no, it wasn't a joke. He... Um, What's the name of it? She won Best Actress, maybe. For oh, it. yeah. You're talking about Blue Jasmine. Blue Jasmine. That was good. So we know what happens. But uh, I'm going to enjoy reading it anyway. Yeah, it'll be great. And we'll just get to go, Stella, all night. And then I'll get to look at Christopher and wink and go, I've always relied on the kindness of strangers. <laughs> oh, you're turning you're turning burgundy, Chris. You're turning burgundy oh. with desire. Yeah. Um, all right, folks. Um, until next week. Say good night. Good night. Good night. I can't have another for I'm not free. She's in my dream. Awake or sleep.